Good morning, everybody. We're going to start in 10 seconds, so if everyone can find your places. A privilege once again to welcome Micha Goodman. Good morning. There is a lot to talk about, and there is a lot on everyone's minds. What I'd like to do is to share some thoughts about the challenge of tradition and modernity in the 21st century. And then we'll open this up for questions. And I know many people he- were here in my talk yesterday in Shabbat. Am I right? Okay? So there's a lot of Israel questions, a lot of Middle East questions, a lot of things. And then there was also Talbot. So, so when I open this for Q&A, please feel free to ask anything, not only about what we're talking about now, but about everything that this wonderful weekend we spent together fleshed out. Okay? Here's something I believe in. There is a French philosopher, Voltaire, a modernist, that has the following understanding of religion. What we live... Okay. Okay, I'll be... Don't worry, I'll I'll warm up. Don't worry. We have this if you want to wear this on the ear. Madonna? Yeah. Does this look weird? Is this fine? Do I look like Wes? <laughs> you sound like Wes. <laughs> so now I'm okay. Now I'm good. So Voltaire's understanding of religion is the following understanding of religion. Religion brings out the worst out of humanity. Religion is like human beings have this uh, very evil, dangerous, violent side inside of them. But it's almost always not, doesn't come out. We're almost always pretty good in keeping that violent monster we have inside of us deep inside. And what civilization is about, it's about guarding ourselves from ourselves. Keeping that violent monster that we have inside of us deep inside, not letting it out. That's That's the role of civilization. It's a guard. We use civilization. We use what we call being civilized. We guard ourselves from ourselves. What religion does, argues Voltaire, is exactly the opposite. What religion does, it opens up the door to the most violent, darkest part of ourselves. I'll just share what's on my mind. Um, this morning there was a, a terrorist attack right in the community where I live. In Thank God it was an attempt to, uh, to um, I run someone over. Thank God one of my neighbors managed to end the violence, but he had to use violence in order to do that. This is a piece of news that I received just now. I was walking in. So, and it's a, I mean, everyone's fine, besides the terrorist. But, you know, maybe that's okay. So you ask, 
what brings, why is it that religion, in his case, Islam, in other cases, Judaism, in Voltaire's case, Christianity, why is it that religion has the ability to tap into, to open up what civilization is trying to close? Why is it that the most powerful violent forces we have inside of us, they are silent, but then religion is like a button. You press it, and it bursts out. Why does religion have that power? And Voltaire says religion has two things. One, because it cultivates ignorance. It cultivates ignorance. And ignorance is what triggers violence. So if you want, once we get rid of religion, we can start taking care of ignorance and then start dealing with violence. And another piece that religion has, which is even, which makes it even worse, it doesn't only create ignorance, it also creates dogmatism. When I say dogmatism, I mean that religious people have a tendency to believe that what they think happens to be what God thinks. Now that's an incredible coincidence, by the way. <laughs> that what you think is what God... Your, my opinions about, no matter what it is, about gay marriage, about the occupation, about religion, about whatever it is, when my opinions, when I think that my opinions are God's opinions, which is, that makes me one of the most luckiest people in the world... So I can't listen anymore to anyone else. Because anyone that thinks different from me doesn't think different from me. Because it's not my opinion. He thinks different than God. Which means that person, democracy is founded on a conversation between people that are wrong. I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong. And that's, you're definitely wrong. And that's, that's how America looks like today. <laughs> And that's how you begin a conversation. Two people that are wrong. Religious when religion enters a conversation and distorts the conversation, this is how it looks like. I don't think, if I, my opinions are God's opinions, that means you're not wrong. That means you sin. Now when I see you, not as someone that just made a mistake, <laughs> which you are, but someone that is sinning, so my attitude is different. I don't make, sometimes I try to persuade you, but most of the times I have to fight you. And this is how religion brings out the worst. The worst. Voltaire argues, so you know what the best way to get rid of the damage created by religion? To get rid of religion itself. The more, Voltaire argued, the more the world will be secular. Less ignorant it will be, less dogmatic it will be, the more liberal and democratic it will become, and therefore, the more the better the, the world will be a better place, a more moral place. That's Voltaire's argument. Now, one must say we could say about Voltaire. Well, you're always speaking about the extreme version of religion. There's more moderate versions of religion. So let me add something about the moderate version of religion. 
Many times what the moderate version of religion does to us does three things. One, even if I'm not trying to attack, kill, fight people that I think that are wrong because I see them as sinners, even if it doesn't bring out fanaticism out of us, it brings out other things. Even moderate form of religion brings out for many religious people, it turns them into very judgmental human beings. Judgmental meaning I'm always measuring others using a religious um, barometer, um, prism, to, thank you, to measure other people, how from he is, how from she is. An Orthodox, a, a close friend of mine in Israel, she's Orthodox, and she just made a very daring decision to take her, um, her, her, her head cover off. And society, everybody's measuring her, and how can you do that? And she has to live up, and very, she's living in a very judgmental community, and it's going to hurt her children. Living, being, living in a very, in a very intense religious world, living in a very judgmental environment. But then there is the other side of being judgmental, and that's being filled with guilt. Religious people carry guilt around all the time. Because, you know, guilt is the other side of being judgmental. It's just being judgmental towards yourself. Or one would say maybe being judgmental is turning your own guilt towards others. And finally, and finally, one of the worst habits of religious people is not only that I have to sacrifice a lot, feeling constantly guilty, judging others, Finally, many times I have to sacrifice my intellectual integrity. Because what I believe in as a religious person is in contrast to what I know is right scientifically. And therefore, in order to be loyal to my religious beliefs, what do I have to do? I have to sometimes sacrifice my intellectual integrity and to believe in things that I'm not really sure exist. You have to sacrifice... So being religious, even if I'm not going out killing people, maybe I'm not destroying the world, but something in my own world is being destroyed. I'm not sacrificing other lives, but something within my life is being constantly sacrificed. Guilt, my intellectual integrity, my relationship with others always being mediated by some element of being judgmental. So you know what's now? The, so Yeshayahu Leibovich liked to say, well, there's a price of being religious. That's right. Being religious is about sacrifice. That is why the Akedah is the dominant symbol of religious life. You have to sacrifice. You have to give up something. So we're giving up part of our relationships and how we feel about ourselves and our intellectual integrity. Well, one would say, if I want to make peace with myself, and if I want to live in harmony with others without judging them all the time, and I want to live a real, honest, intellectual life, the only real way to do that is to get rid of religion. I have to get rid of religion in order to liberate myself. I must say, that the sermon I've just delivered, 
I find very persuasive. So I don't know what you're doing here. I find this very persuasive. My problem is that I also find the next sermon very persuasive. I'm entering now an alternative sermon. Secularism is dangerous. 20th century was this, is the, the century where there were tremendous secular experiments. When I say secular experiments, I'm speaking about this is the most humanistic century in the history of humanity. Humanistic meaning, the 20th century was a century where human beings developed ideas. They developed ideas actually in the 19th century, which they believed were perfect ideas. And they also believed that if we implement those ideas in this world, the world will become a perfect world. So it's not only believing that we can create perfect ideas, it's also the belief that if we implement them, we can create a perfect world. And the 20th century is an experiment. Can human beings use their minds to create perfect ideas, and those ideas will perfect this world? Meaning, if in traditional people believe that God could redeem this world, the secular move was human beings inheriting God. This time it's our ideas and our political actions that could redeem this world. And the 20th century was the great experiment. And what was the result of that experiment? Nazism, fascism, communism, all forms of isms. Over 50 million people are killed in Germany. Over 50 million people in Russia. And over 50 million people in China. As Karl Popper, one of the most important philosophers of our times, described it. The 20th century we've learned that... Here I have a problem. It's very weird. I only know that Popper wrote in English... I only know to quote him in Hebrew. I have to translate Hebrew to English. So, so his line was, okay, but he, it's not like it's from Yiddish. So, I mean, or Latin. It, so, I'll try to say this in English. He says, the 20th century was a century where human beings thought that they could create heaven on earth. That we could create utopian societies. That we could create in this world Gan Eden. Says so in Hebrew and in English. But in the 20th century, you've learned that Hebrew. Every place we've tried to create heaven, we found ourselves in hell. That's true. If the Crusades is a story of the failure of religion, how religion or the, or the, the, the wars between the Protestants and the Catholics entering modernity, if those are great stories, horrible stories, about how religion brings out the worst from us, the 20th century is a story about how secularism brings out the worst from us. Secularism failed. So you could say, well, um, 
Uh, you're only speaking about the fanatic version of secularism. What about the moderate version of secularism? What about a secular version where you don't think that humanity could create ideas that could redeem the world? You're just, you know, it's a more moderate form of secularism. What about that? Well, it seems like the most, even the moderate form of secularism is failing. And we see it all over. Alexis de Tocqueville, in English you say the Tocqueville or the Tocqueville? The Tocqueville. He was an Israeli philosopher, so that's why I think in my So, <laughs> the Tocqueville. Alexis de Tocqueville asked a, some very important questions about a civilization cultivating individualism. And he had a vision. And he saw the, the following. He said, individualism doesn't necessarily mean egoism. It doesn't. Meaning the thought that we are all unique and we have to empower what makes us different than everyone else, makes us special, doesn't mean you don't care about everyone else. On the contrary, you could say, I'm going to try to cultivate and empower what makes me unique, different from everyone else, so I can return and empower everyone else with my uniqueness. Individualism could lead to altruism. It could. The Tocqueville argues it won't. It won't. Eventually, a civilization constantly speaking about uniqueness, about being special, about being different, is a civilization that's going to eventually move from individualism to egoism. That's what's going to happen to Western civilization, argues the Tocqueville. In a very interesting book that I read because Rabbi West told me to read, The Road to Character, by David Brooks. Did you read this book? I think you should all read what Rabbi West says we should read. <laughs> so he describes, he's trying to describe the ethical climate of this generation. And he says, the ethical climate of this generation. So I guess there is, there is tests, I never knew this, there are uh, narcissism tests that young people have to fill in. And um, he asks like, the following line, how much, is, how much do you find this, does this mean something to you, from 1 to 10? And you're 17 years old, okay? And it says, um, I'm a very important human being. Or my favorite, someone should write a book about me. <laughs> From 1 to 10. You're 17. From 1 to 10. Someone to write a book about me. Someone to do a movie about me. From 1 to 10. And you, and you, so you can know what's the level of narcissism that this generation has. Uh, so the, the past 20 years, Wes, do you remember the numbers? The, yes. So in the 20 years, the average in narcissism tests grew 20%. It's so high that Brooke says we entered the age of narcissism. The age of narcissism. Now, the age of narcissism means I want to speak, I want to think about what is when individualism turns into egoism, like the Tukvil 
saw is going to happen, it means that, this is how I'm trying to understand what Western psyche turns into. It means that when I think about what's important to me in my life, there's many things important to me. Community, relationships, ideas I believe in, what I want. Now, when what you want becomes the most important piece of your life, what I want, and let's make it even worse, what I want now becomes the most important part of my life, is the most important part to me. What I want, that's when individualism turns into egoism, and the result is that the family unit throughout Western civilization is collapsing. And it shouldn't surprise us that it's so hard for families to function in this ethical climate. Because here's something that I know happens to me almost every day. Um, in the campus in Eintracht, some of you were there, right? Just raise your hand, you see? Okay, so you know we have an image, okay? And whoever it wasn't, so you're missing out. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's evening, and I'm speaking to students, and they're, ins and they're interested, and they're inspired, I'm speaking to them. And then I get a text message on my telephone from my wife. And it says, in Hebrew, ambatiot, um, bath time. So now I have this moment where we're with my students and we're talking and laughing and stuff. And then there is this text, bath time. Now if I'm lucky, it only says bath time and not bath time now. This is bath time. Because if it says now, it means I'm in. So, so now, what am I supposed to do now? What do, what do I want? What do I want? I want to be here at the moment. But being in a family means that, so what if, so what if that's what I want? This is an akeda moment. I have to sacrifice what I want now. I have to not do what I want. I have to, and I have to go home and, you know, and if, because I know something else, that if 10 minutes will pass and I won't leave everything, so what's the next text? Now. And then it, I really don't want to go back to that. So now, so this is, what I'm describing is not something, not that, I think it's not typical. I think this is, living in a family means that you're, that you made an impossible decision. That what you want is not the most important thing in your life. The problem is that Western civilization cultivating individualism, leading to egoism, clashes with a life where you sacrifice, where, where you give up what you want. And as a result, people, you know, you know, you know people are not getting married, getting married very late, not having, you know, you know families are not surviving the move from in, ego, individualism to egoism. But it's not only that move, there's more to this. I want to add two pieces. What is modern technology doing to us? My sister-in-law, I was visiting with, with, with a family in Jerusalem, and we're sitting in a park in Jerusalem, and she noticed something very sad. It was always there, I just never seen it. 
You know the image of, here's a park, public park, and the kids, the little kids, are alive and they're climbing up the jungle gym and they're playing and they're falling. They're excited and all the parents are sitting on the benches. What are they doing? They're on their cell phones. So, the, so all the parents, and they feel guilty that they're on their cell phones. So they look and they overreact to their children. Oh, beautiful! And then <laughs> you're back. That's how they compensate. And when I told her, well, that's horrible. She says, yeah, that's what you're doing for the half an hour. Like, yeah, I, would, I, have, I have to do this because it's important. So, the Jewish people or something. So, so everyone is saving the world. So, you have, so this moment, we're, 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 now this is very serious. What is this doing to our relationships? So, about a month ago, an article comes out in the New York Times. A very important, I found very. And describes a, a, a professor from, from, Mich- from the University of Michigan. Maybe some of you read this. Describe 89, uh, ask young people in their 20s the following question. In your last social interaction, you were talking to someone. How many of you also um, used, used your smartphone in a virtual interaction while you were in a real interaction with someone? And you know how many people said yet yeah, the last time we, we did that? 89%. So they asked those people, so how could you also, I don't know, do a like on Facebook and communicate with someone? Well, we're good at that. We know how to, but you see, but you see, so she argues, but they measured the level of empathy that these people have. And level of empathy dropped 40%. Empathy, our ability to read other people, to feel what other people feel, to communicate on the deepest levels, not only to understand what you say, but to feel what you feel, the deepest form of understanding, went down 40%. Narcissism is up, empathy is down. Wendy Zuckerberg, the sister of Mark Zuckerberg, he has to have a Jewish name, right? Some Pinchas or something. She says that, um, that um, when we ha- we're all the time addicted to our smartphones, to our technology, and we don't, don't go through detox. This is her word, detox. So we lose a lot. One of the things that we lose, and is also echoed in that, in that piece in the New York Times. Maybe I'll find it and send it to you guys. If you want. You have email? Yeah. <laughs> so... By the way, that's all I have. I don't have Facebook. Because of... Some... What? You have a smartphone, see here? Way ahead of all of us. Yeah. So, this right, it's not only that people have hard time... People have a hard time surviving awkward moments. We always have a hard time awkward moments. But that's harder than ever. Because when you're in a conversation, there's an awkward moment, what do people do? They immediately go into the smartphone. We have a way to escape painful moments in interaction. But the thing is, when you start escaping it, it becomes even more painful next time around. Which means you'll be seduced to escape it even more. And think harder. And as a result, today, in uh, parties, when young people go to parties, they have to drink more alcohol than we used to have to drink. 
in order to feel liberated in your behavior because interaction is becoming harder. But what she argues is not only it's harder to be with others, it's harder for us to be with ourselves. Because here's something that's harder to do than ever, to stare. Now this, is a, I think, is a very important activity, just, you know, just, you know, to, to stare. Today we don't stare anymore, why? Because the moment you have a moment with, when you're with yourself, you're not with yourself anymore. This action, this almost mechanical action, destroys your ability to stare. It just captures your attention with something very interesting, very intriguing, always fascinating, and your ability just to, you know. And that's the moment where things happen, when you're bored. When thoughts meet thoughts and creativity happens. So there's an Israeli thinker that said, had great, he said, the fact that we don't stare anymore in the long run is going to cripple our creativity. Technology, which is a result of creativity, is going to cripple our creativity in the end. Or as an Israeli thinker said, said uh, he said this in Hebrew, I'll, I'll say this in English. Mark Zuckerberg created a world that can't create a Mark Zuckerberg. You want to say that in Hebrew? Mark Zuckerberg created the world <laughs> that can't create <laughs> That's Hebrew. That's <laughs> and finally, I want to move to um, to consumerism. And let's just say one thing about consumerism: a consumer society is a society where we measure each other, our value by our ability to consume. But it's not only that we see others by their ability to consume. Consumer society is a society at its worst where you measure yourself through what you consume. Meaning, there is a great line, not from a philosopher, but from, you know the movie Fight Club? Everybody see Fight Club? Everybody see her Nazi Fight Club? Okay, so I shouldn't, I don't want to ruin it for you. I don't want to ruin it for you. But forever, I'll just quote, there's Brad Pitt, I forgot his name there. Brad Pitt, sorry. I'm still thinking in Hebrew. Brad Pitt. <laughs> so there's a moment where I think his name is Tyler Durden, right? So Tyler Durden speaks to someone that's not Tyler Durden, just to make sure that. And he says to him, You are not the things you own, which is a powerful line. Because obviously, in a consumer society, people identify. What you own is more than what you own. It becomes who you are. The house you live. Now these are three major threats on our psyche. Narcissism, technology, and consumerism. Major threats. Now you understand what's the, what religion offers us? It offers us, it guards us in a very deep way from these threats because I belong to something that's greater than me, surrendering to a power that's more powerful than myself. My life is not only about me. Meaning doesn't come from what I own. Halachically, 
if you observe Shabbat in a strict way, you have a day of detox every week. And you live... You know what the answer to the threats of secularism is? Religion. Now I must say, the sermon I've just delivered (laughs) persuaded me. You should all become very from. Now here's the problem. If you were persuaded only by my first sermon that's saying that religion is dangerous, it makes you violent and dogmatic and not honest intellectually and filled with guilt and constantly being judgmental and the answer to all the problems of religion is secularism. If you believe only that sermon, you're okay. If you believe only the second sermon, that secularism and modernity is dangerous, it threatens us, it, and narcissism and consumerism and, and what was it, a technology and, and, and being addicted to it. And you know what the answer to that is? Religion. If you believe only my second sermon, you're okay. But you know when you become confused? If you're persuaded by both sermons, like I am, then you're in trouble. Then you're in trouble. Now what do you do with I, mean, I am persuaded by both sermons. I think that secularism is a refuge from religion. And religion is... Right, can't escape secularism to religion. And when, when religion... So this... But if I believe in both, I think this is the perplexity of the 21st century. In the 12th century... Remember when I came... I think last time I was here, we spoke about the guy for the perplexed. Because my mind is wrote an important book, and I tried to write an important book about his book. About the guy for the perplexed. And my mind tried to set what does it mean to be perplexed. And he says, being perplexed is the following. Being perplexed is that you have a um, you you have your religious belief system and you believe in it. Then you read science and philosophy and you're persuaded by it. And you feel that if you go with philosophy, you have to turn you back to religion. If you go with your religion, you have to turn you back to philosophy, and you're perplexed and you're stuck. And that's why the Ramam comes around right to guide the perplexed. Maybe I can guide you into this perplexity and out of this perplexity. That's the perplexity of the Middle Ages. I think that perplexity between what we believe and what we know became the perplexity of modern times. Datumadah, religion and science. In the Bible it says that the world was created 5,700 and... And 76 years ago, according to science, 13 billion and some, a lot, 13.6 billion or something like that. And according to the Bible, humanity was created in one day. According to science, it was an evolution of millions of years. And now there's a clash between your, what your beliefs and your intellect. That is a replay of the Maimonidian perplexity. It's a replay of that. And how do you deal with this between two sources of authority? Science and religion. And the clash of sources of authority creates a perplexity of the Middle Ages and modernity. I think the 21st century introduces a new perplexity. I think this perplexity, 
the Maimonidian complexity is not a real complexity anymore. And the reason is, is that um, the notion that religion is subjective and science is objective is challenged by postmodernism. Everything is subjective, everything has narratives, everything, we won't go, the sense that there's a real clash is less powerful and less meaningful. I think the clash of the 21st century is the clash, the perplexity of the 21st century, the perplexity that is experienced by one that was persuaded by both sermons. What I tried to deliver this morning is a perplexity, I want to think about it differently, not between two sources of authority, but between two very basic human needs. And it's two needs that we have. We have one need, a very strong need, an important need, a need to belong. We belong to something greater than us. Their life is infused with meaning. We need to belong. We need to belong to something that was there before us, that will be here after us. It's a very strong, powerful human need. It always was. I think it always will be. But then there's another human need. We want to be free. We want to be on our own. We want to be liberated. And here there's a clash between our need to belong and our need to be free. Because what does it mean to belong? What do you sacrifice when you belong to something? Your freedom. But when you let yourself free, what do you sacrifice? Your belonging. I think this is the perplexity of the 21st century. We need both. We want both. And it seems like it's very hard to have both. So what do we do? Now some people are not perplexed. Some people are willing. Their, st their strong sense of belonging willing to sacrifice all sense of being free. I own, or vice versa. I, I, I'm don't, I'm, I don't belong to anything, to a tradition, to an idea. God, I'm on my own. But I think, I think, I don't want to speak for anyone that's sitting here. But I have a feeling that in some sense, I am trying to articulate something that many of us feel that we need to belong and we have to be free. And those two needs clash. It's not about evolution, Darwin in chapter 1 in Genesis anymore. I mean, maybe that troubles some people. Does it, by the way? No. No. <laughs> but, is it, but belonging and, and, and this, but this new clash, is, is this the perplexity of the 21st century, not between sources of knowledge, but our very basic human needs. So after framing that, I'd like to offer one way of thinking about how to deal with it, and then I'll close. I want to think about healthy relationships. When I am in a healthy relationship, on the one hand, I am belonging to something that's greater than me, and yet, I'm not completely controlled by it. Well, it depends if it says now or not in the end of that. Because <laughs> without now, there's still freedom of interpretation. 
Bathtub is a fact. Now, when I think about what does it mean to have a healthy relationship with our tradition, with our past, I want to offer a metaphor, which I think is more than a metaphor. I think this might be something very, for Jews, this is very much alive. What is the structure of the, of the Talmud? The structure of the Talmud, the Mishnah, and the Gemara, the Talmud, it's, these are, this is our canonical text. This is the text that has all the authority of the world. This is how do you know that something is a text of authority? That within a Jewish conversation, you can always criticize someone quoting the Talmud. And why are you behaving that way? The Talmud says that you can always criticize someone quoting the Talmud. But you can't criticize the Talmud. That's a sacred text. A text you can always use to judge others, but you can't. That text is not, you can't judge it. Okay. Well, there's a problem when the Talmud becomes your canon. Because what do we have in the Talmud? We have disagreements. Hillel says this. Shammai says that. By the way, anyone who was here in Talmud class um, a long time ago, <laughs> So notice that the fact that you have disagreements in the Talmud, that you listen to both sides, if the Talmud was according to Shammai, how would the Talmud look like? You have much shorter, you, have, you would know disagreements, you have only one voice. You don't listen to another voice. But the Talmud is to the Hilo paradigm, where even the voices, they're not entered, the halacha are a part of the Talmud. So this is what's very interesting about the structure of the Talmud. That's it's a canonization not of the instructions but of the disagreements. Now that's a very weak way to create a sense of authority. Saying, okay, there's a disagreement about it and good luck and you have to obey that. You see, when I, when I um, tell my girls, listen, um, um, we're trying to be very strict on technology, no more iPads today at all. No more. And my wife would say, I'm sure I know my problems with you, I'm sorry. My wife would say, yeah, but until 8 o'clock it's okay. <laughs> so, what just happened to my kids? How is my sense, or her sense in that sense, of authority now played out when there's a disagreement? That's how you challenge authority, by exposing the disagreement. You see, here's interesting. The Talmud is a text of authority but it's written in a way that undermines its own authority. That's not how authority is supposed to look like. But yes, in the paradox of Jewish authority, the structure of the text that carries authority undermines its own authority. And we have the canonization of the machloket, of the disagreement. Meaning, when you're in the Talmud, what you see is a conversation of a disagreement. What's even more interesting in the Talmud is that the disagreement between the sages in the Talmud is a disagreement that transcends time and space. A scholar could be in Israel, another one in Babylon, and they're having a conversation. They had no internet. The editor of the Talmud made them meet. They never met. And even worse, one could be from one generation, 
another from a different generation, and they're still having a conversation. It's a conversation that transcends space and time. It's an ongoing, so I want to now offer a definition to belonging to Judaism. And my definition is inspired by an Israeli important thinker, Amos Oz. I think you Americans call him for some reason Amos Oz. <laughs> you also call, say, call Isab Isa, which is... Yeah, always troubling me. Here's being a Jew is belonging to a communion. But there's three layers to my, my trying to define this. It's belonging to a community. But the community that you belong to, its members are not only your generation, it's all the generations that belong to that community. So you belong to a community that the members of the community are not only your generation. Rabbi Akiva's generation is a part of the community that you belong to. Maimonides' generation is a part of the community that you belong to. Being Jewish is, is belonging to a, I hope I say this correctly, a multi-generation, or generational? Generational, you say? A multi-generational community. Now think of how hard it is just to belong to a community with one generation here in the Temple of You have to listen and care and take into consideration what all the people that live in your community, that belong to your community, think about. Now what does it mean? Now to belong to a community, that now you have to think about and take into consideration the way you live your life. What, if you belong to a multi-generational community, what Rabbi Akiva generation thought about what you're doing. But living in a community, does that mean that you have to completely, completely erase yourself in order to belong to a community? You're very aware of what your community wants. It becomes a large piece of your judgment what your community needs, but you still exist. You're still asking, what do I want? What I want is, a part, is an important part of my life, but once I'm in a community... It still is an important part of my life, what I want. It just can't be the most important part of my life. Living in a multi-generational community means that what I want is important, but it can't be the only thing that is important. I want to add now a third layer. It's belonging to a community. That community is multi-generational. It contains 100 generations. And what's the glue that connects all these 100 generations? What is it? It's very hard to find one common denominator to 100 generations of Jews. If it's a belief system, it's not. Because for 100 generations, Jews didn't believe in the same thing. You can say, okay, in one God, okay, there's only one problem. The way you define one God, the Kabbalists define the one God in a way that would make Maimonides... Maimonides would say that that's idol worshiping. So we don't have the same God. So what do we share? Amos Alzar argues, we're not in the same belief system. What creates the system we're a part of, we're in the same conversation. We're in the same conversation. The Talmud is a metaphor for what Judaism is. It's a conversation that crosses generations. 
My generation does not have to obey the last generation, doesn't have to rebel against the last generation, has to be in conversation with the last generations. To be in conversation with them. Meaning, if Judaism was a belief system, you join Judaism by believing in it. But if it's a conversation, how do you join a conversation? Ironically, if you disagree with Jewish tradition, you're joining it. If it was a belief system, by disagreeing, you're rejecting it. But if it's a conversation, well, even if I have some doubts about part of tradition, that's not rejecting tradition by definition, it's joining it. I'm joining the conversation. I'm in a conversation with my past. I'm in a conversation with it. But there is something, it's not that easy to join a conversation. Because in order to join a conversation, you know when you're in a conversation and somebody joins the conversation, he's out of context? He's out of, what? It's awkward. If a Jewish conversation is an ongoing conversation, that's what it is. You can't just join the conversation, oh, I think different. You don't know what we're talking about. You have to be acquainted with the conversation. Learning Jewish texts. Getting yourself a Jewish education means you're creating the ability to join the Jewish conversation. Making your opinion matter, making your opinion a part of the conversation has to mean that you know something about that conversation. I want to replace believing with joining. It's about joining the conversation. And if we think about Judaism as a community, it's a multi-generational community, that what connects it is ongoing conversation. Therefore, joining it is joining the conversation, so two things happen. One, I could belong to it without surrendering to it. I could have because if it's a conversation, I belong to it, I join it, not by losing my own life, not by losing my liberty. On the contrary, I'm expressing my liberty in that conversation, and my opinions in that conversation. I think maybe when we think about perplexity of the 21st century, a way to start dealing with the perplexity between belonging and being free is thinking of Judaism as, I think, what it really is. A multi-generational conversation. That's a conversation that's putting it all together. And joining the conversation can enable me, on the one hand, not to be completely controlled by this tradition, and at the same time, to intimately belong to this tradition. It seems easy, but I just said, it's not. Because the gateway in to overcoming the perplexity of the 21st century is learning. To join the conversation, we actually have, we actually have, I know this is, Temple Emmanuel invests a lot in adult education. In a trip to Hartman, you should all come to Hartman, by the way. 
And, but this is all, I would say, this is not just enriching our Jewish lives, it's enabling us to join the Jewish conversation and maybe begin the attempt to deal with the perplexity of the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. What can I say? It's like watching Rembrandt paint and what you say after that. So thank you. What I thought we would do, this is kind of a, a move that we have learned from Yehuda Kurtzer uh, at Hartman. What he does after one of these kinds of conversations is uh, he just takes you know, a few questions uh, without engaging in any of the questions in particular. Um, and then after like three, four, or five questions, then you can say whatever you want in response to whichever questions you want. <laughs> no, no, I asked him about it because I said, I, it struck me because he'll take, he'll take five questions and I'll say, hey, Yehuda, why don't you just let the speaker answer the first question? And he said, because the first question may not be a question he wants to answer. Uh, so that, get a number of questions out there and then once the questions are surfaced, then you can tackle what you think are the most thoughtful. So, but, but let's let's just use this, these last minutes of this is the last minutes of our whole weekend together. Yes, Scotland residents. So, if there's any questions about anything that came up, so this would be yes, any yeah. questions about anything that came up. So, I'm going to just take let's say four or five questions, and uh, and we'll take the questions one at a time, and then maybe we can respond after four or five questions. And please make them shorter questions. Um, I find that the more I learn the more flummoxed I get about how I will ever learn enough. Nobody learns everything, but how I will ever learn enough to make any sense out of anything. And I'm wondering if you have a minimum entry fee. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a great question. Great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, great. Other questions around here? Bruce? I know yesterday you talked about rejection of modernity as an important part of fundamentalism, yet ISIS uses that to great success. How do they explain that to their followers? Martin? Would you mind repeating the uh, how the Palestinian justification stabbing people? There was an Arabic word you used, and I appreciate hearing that over again, because I really didn't understand it. <laughs> okay. The tradition of the Seder will take four questions. This is the fourth question. But Wes, you only took from from the left side, and they'll say you're a left you're a left winger. So <laughs> on the question of learning, you're saying learning is a is a predicate to engaging in the conversation. But can you not, even if you have very little learning, can you not sort of learn from being in the conversation? Mm -hmm. So, make a lot of these questions and then we'll come around. I want to say something about learning and then about the Mukawama, about the um, Palestinian narrative. I really I have no idea what's the uh, you call it, the, the the fee to enter the entrance fee. It's a great metaphor. This is a club where I have a conversation. There's an entrance fee to know the conversation. What is it enough to know the entire Talmud? 
half of the Talmud, a page of the Talmud. <laughs> How much is enough? Dafyomi. <laughs> How much is enough? I want to speak about something else. I want, I want to speak about here, not about intellectual achievement, but about intellectual aspiration. An important... Um, here's the definition. I hope this works. To have an intimate feeling of how much you don't know. Try to explain this. David Hartman once told me that he used to buy his grandchildren for the bar mitzvah a shas. The, enti oh, the entire set of the Talmud. And he, knows he knew they're not going to study it. He just wanted them to feel guilty every time they look at it. <laughs> Now I realize I want to add something to this line. That, okay, every time you look at the Talmud, you say, oh my God, I didn't read that yet. But you know what? If you never studied one page of the Talmud, you don't really know what it is that you didn't read. If you studied one page of the Talmud, two pages of the Talmud, and you know how you, have a, you know the flavor of the Talmud, so you know the flavor of what you didn't read. There's something to learn enough to have the flavor of the universe that you didn't learn. I think that's an achievement. Do you know what it feels? I mean, I also don't know um, uh, Confucius. But since I, I didn't even study enough Confucius to say that I don't know Confucius. I, didn't, I don't even know the taste of the inner conversation to know, wow, this. There is so much more of that. So, here's a bar I'd like to set for Temple Emmanuel. How about we learn, you learn enough to enjoy the flavor of everything that you don't know? How about you, you learn enough to feel guilty that you're not learning all the time? Is that okay? Bringing guilt. <laughs> Love guilt. Guilt. So. <laughs> now about the um, Mukawama. The, the, um, there's. There's a Mukawama. And the question of, of values and, and power. So, uh, since he have a problem. Mukawama. I probably don't pronounce it correctly because I'm used to reading it and not. Um, what? So I, 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 maybe I'm not pronouncing this correctly. This is a term that defines a state of mind that restores pride to a humiliated civilization. The, the existential experience of the Islamic civilization is that there's such a tremendous gap between Islamic civilization and Western civilization. And how do you, and that gap is humiliating. And part of the mindset is this gap is because Western civilization is constantly crushing and humiliating the Islamic civilization. And the only and you shall you shouldn't ever accept that gap. I'm speaking now as a Muslim. You should ever accept that gap. You should never surrender to that gap. You have to express the fact that you're not accepting the gap of power. And you express it through fighting. Meaning we're fighting for the sake of fighting, for the sake of making the statement that we're not accepting the superiority of Western civilization. 
Meaning, a Western person will ask the question, why did you just stab someone? That's assuming that that stabbing was a means for a goal. That's Western way of thinking. But if you're thinking as stabbing was just what I did to express the fact that we're not surrendering to you guys. We're still fighting. We're not accepting this reality. And since this is a whole issue in Islamic world towards Western civilization, it's played out between Palestinians and Israelis. Because Palestinians and Israelis are many things. But they're also Muslims and Israelis are perceived as Westerners. So everything that has tension between Islam and West is played out between Israelis and Palestinians. There's only one problem. That's only one thing that's played out between Israelis and Palestinians. There's other levels to the conflict. The second level to the conflict is that in their narrative, in the war that was between 1947 and 1949, we threw out from their homes 750,000 people. 85% of their population we expelled from their homes according to their narrative. Which they... Now, this event for the Palestinians is not something that happened to them. It became a part of who they are. Who they are. 500,000 refugees in Lebanon, another half a million in Syria, much more in Jordan and in other parts of the world. It's being a refugee being someone that was expelled from their home and waiting for the moment of return is a part of who they are, their mythology. Children in refugee camps in Lebanon draw drawings of their home in Akko, Yafo, Haifa, or Baka, Hartman people, or, or West Jerusalem. They, 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 so they have a, a connection to their past and waiting for return in the future. That might sound familiar, by the way. Waiting to return home. Some scholars say they really internalized the Jewish narrative of waiting to return home. Now this is, so you have, as a Muslim, I'm humiliated by you Westerner. As a Palestinian, I'm a victim of you Israeli. Oh, and then there's the third layer, the occupation. And in 1947, you threw me away from my land, and in 67, you conquered my land. Those are three levels of the conflict. Some people think that if we take care of one level, the two other levels will go away. If we take care of the occupation, the expulsion will evaporate, and the humiliation will deteriorate, and it'll be okay. Yeah, um, I don't think so. And as a result, maybe we have to think about a different way of dealing with this conflict. Maybe these are thoughts I've shared here in the past. Um, you see, during the peace process, Israel always has a fantasy to end a um, uh, end of claims from the Palestinian side. We'll give you the land of '67 back with land swaps or whatever. And you have to sign up that you're giving up all of the claims from Israel. Which means when I'm asking you to give up all of their claims, what am I actually asking them if I see the world through their narrative and their eyes? What am I actually asking them? 
if the Nakba is a part of their identity, and the Mukawama Fadi is a part of their identity as so in essence you say, okay, we have no more claims from you and 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 we're going to live in peace. So what am I ask, what am I really asking them? Right? I'm asking them to convert. To change their to change who they are. I think that's too much to ask for. We shouldn't change who they are. I want to something else. By leaving the territories, by leaving Chevron and Shechem and compromising on Harabait, on Temple Mount. In a very deep sense, also, we have to change who we are. Maybe peace doesn't have to be about conversion. Maybe peace is not a moment. Maybe, not a peace. Maybe the deal that we should think about and start thinking about, I don't want to enter this now, is not a deal where we both give up our dreams, give up our identities, but a deal has to be a moment where we express our dreams, where we express our identities. Maybe it should be about giving up dreams. It just should be about pragmatically dealing with our day-to-day problems. They need independence. We need security. Maybe there is a, a low-key deal. I want to echo something that I said. The 20th century thought they're perfect ideas that if we implement them, it will be a perfect world. But every time we try to do that, we create a much less perfect world. Maybe also when it comes to the conflict, there is no perfect solution. And every time we think there is one, we'll implement it, we'll just create more chaos. Maybe we have to search, accept the fact that we have to search for an imperfect deal. And I think ironically, the only deal that could work, that can make our world a little bit better, is the only deal that is not trying to make it completely better. So that's, I think, a different way. I, I think we should think about politics in Israel. We'll just take a few questions from the side, and, uh, and then we'll close with the response to these few questions. Uh, David. One of the protagonists in the tensions that you have described is modernity. And modernity is a huge word. I just wonder, what are the characteristics of modernity that you see setting up this continuing disequilibrium, this tension that we have to have? Nice, easy question. Thank you. Mika, <laughs> um, uh, first, thank you. Uh, my question is this. I'd like to have your reaction for the following. You've described to us how our Talmud is a conversation full of discourse, full of difference of opinion, uh, full of uh, contesting ideas. And that's the Jewish conversation and the Jewish tradition. My question is, maybe this works very well for those enterprises that require personal development, development spiritual development, religious development. But how does this work for those enterprises that require unity, and such as governance and sovereignty? Okay. We'll take two last questions from Bob Listernick and then from Gary. Okay. Wasn't there a third way in Israel that, uh, that tried to fill the gap between secularism and religion and, uh, and belonging and a sense of freedom? And that was the kibbutz movement mm. that seems to be dying off. But, well, wasn't that a successful alternative? 
Five, four minutes? Uh, yeah. Why don't you say we have like seven minutes? Seven minutes. Good Jewish number. Okay, good Jewish number. So I, these were great, great questions. And I choose, I hope, I hope it's okay. I want to choose the question that I was waiting for, even before I walked in. <laughs> because I want to end with some optimism about Israel. Okay? And I was asked, isn't there a third way? And so is that okay if I, if I address that issue? Okay. Isn't there a third way? And I think as we're talking, is the, a third way is developing in Israel. I want to think about this third way from two different angles, from two different directions. And I want to tap into my two sermons. The sermon of why uh, religion is a threat to our minds... And therefore, we have to escape into secularism. And my second sermon, why secularism is a threat to who we are, so we have to escape into religion. <laughs> so that do so. Now, I think, I think what we find in Israel is an attempt to develop a third way that I think, once we develop it, could be very inspirational for Jews around the world. And that is, we find this, how can I have an intimate connection with my past without being controlled by my past? How can I belong and stay free? How can I overcome the complexity of the 21st century? Last time I was here, we spoke about the complexity of the 12th century. Isn't this one more interesting? <laughs> Am I? So, I want to think about how, I I'll share with you what I'm trying to do in Israel. Within the secular community in Israel and within the religious community in Israel, we have very interesting changes happening. For example, within the religious community in Israel, yeah, you're starting to have, this is about 30% of Israeli religious people, that are starting to ask maybe it's time to slowly but surely change some parts of the halacha. Especially when it comes to relationship with gay people, the LGBT community, the status of women in halacha. And this is a very interesting ongoing debate that's happening. It's only started. It's new to us. You know how other side of the orthodoxy of Israel is reacting to that? They're terrified and they're reacting by becoming even more extreme. But I want you to know something. When you see Israeli orthodoxy becoming extreme, you should know 
That doesn't mean that Israel is becoming extreme, it's becoming moderate. That's why you're hearing the extreme voice. What you're listening to is the reaction to what's happening. That's not what's happening. But the thing is, the reaction to what's really happening is what seems like is happening. You understand what I'm saying? Reactions are very powerful. So they're becoming even more extreme because now they're not reacting to secularism, they're reacting to religious Israelis opening up to secularism and staying religious. Changing halacha and even after they're starting to change halacha, they dare to call, the, call themselves orthodox. Why call yourself? Uh, you don't own the word, dude. Yeah. We are, this is, so this is something very interesting that's happening within the Dati community in Israel. The Chiloni, the secular community, is also splitting into two. Where you have secular Israelis that are becoming more secular than ever, more disconnected than ever. Some don't want to do a bris for their children. More angry than ever. But at the same time, you have more secular Israelis who want to become more Jewish than ever and stay secular. More connected to their past without sacrificing their liberty. In a deep sense, you have the T Israelis that want to have more liberty. Secular Israelis that want to have more belonging. And what's interesting is that secular Israelis are connecting to the past. And religious Israelis that are opening up to the world are realizing that they're closer to each other than they both are to their original groups. This group is the third way. This group, which is the first time is not a is, is a group with many brands because it's also the team that are opening up, also secular Israelis that are connecting. And this group is what we like to see in Aim Prat as the new Israeli mainstream, the force that, God willing, will be leading Israel, the next generation. Now, what do they share? You thought that was the ending? Maybe there should be the ending. <laughs> it was a good ending. I just want to say, what do they share? I'll go back to the two sermons. Religious Israelis want to cure Judaism. They feel like a Judaism that's Humiliates women is not the Judaism that they want. They don't want it to be that Judaism, but they don't want to leave. They want to stay and repair it. They want to change. They want to repair Judaism, and they're using modern Western ideas in order to repair Judaism, like feminism, in order to repair Judaism. So we're using Western values to repair Judaism. Secular Israelis. It's very interesting. It took me a long time to figure this out. The reason why they are connecting to Judaism is because they're very critical of secularism. They don't want to leave secularism. They want to repair secularism. As opposed to the liberal Dati'im, they want to use Western values to cure Judaism. The Jewishly inspired secular Israelis want to use Judaism to repair secularism. And they say to themselves, I want to give you a great example of something that's happening to my graduates in Ingrat. They realize how these smartphones, overdosage of them, is not healthy for our relationships. 
for our ability to be with others and to be with ourselves. The need to check how much likes I got. This need that we're that's creating. And it's important to have a day of detox. And an identity is developed where they're not Shomrei Shabbat. Don't observe all the laws of Shabbat. But it's a day with no screens. No screens. Now here's an amazing pun. No screens, not your tablet, not your computer, and especially not your smartphone. No screens. Now here's an amazing pun. It only works in Hebrew. I hope I'll be able to explain this. So, um, you know how you have a screensaver? In Hebrew, a screensaver is called Shomer Masach. Masach is screen, Shomer. So we have this whole new graduates of being trying to work the following. I'm not a Shomer Shabbat. I'm a Shomer Masach. That's what I am. I think this is very biblical in the Bible. We're not to leave where we are in Shabbat. They're saying, let's be present where we are in Shabbat. Let's not leave to a virtual world. Let's let our mind present. Now this is a great example. Feminine, for liberal, datim. Feminism, a Western value. Western value is helping to cure Judaism. But for secular Israelis, Shabbat is having a Jewish idea Your secularism. This is a Jewish answer to a Western problem, not the other way around. And between secular Israelis are searching for Jewish answers to Western problems, and religious Israelis are searching for Western answers to Jewish problems, they're finding each other. Because this is the most interesting part. The attempt to connect the present and the past is building a new connection in Israel. A new Israeli mainstream. The third way. This is happening as we're talking. In a very deep sense, this is what I'm involved in in Israel. Trying to create language and philosophy for the new Israeli third way. And hopefully a dominant group that could lead it. And this is the Israel that when I come here to Temple Emmanuel, I feel like the Israel that's most similar to Temple Emmanuel Judaism. And this is the Israel. This is why I come here. I want to share with you this version of Israel. And with that, no, I think that's much. Mika, thank you, and we will let you know when Mika is coming for the 11th time. Thank you.